Welcome to the Compass Church Podcast, a ministry of Compass Church, Goodyear, Arizona. Join us now as we look into God's Word to be challenged and changed. Well, good morning, everybody. Wow, it's great to see you here. I'm Gabe. I'm one of the pastors here and part of the preaching team. I was sick last week. I'm sick this week, but I'm here. So... You know, if I cough into the mic a lot, I apologize. I'll try to do it this way so you don't get an echo chamber of cough. But uh, I am so thankful for our worship team. You know, they, everybody had to move up and move around because I took last Sunday off. And they were like, we got it. We got it covered. We'll lead worship. We can handle it. And I did the math. Our worship team is really incredible. You know, they, between all the volunteers combined, they put in about like 200 hours of volunteer time a week just to lead you into worship. It's pretty awesome. Pretty awesome. They, they, they put in all this effort just to make sure it's, it's God-filled and awesome and to bring you into that. So I'm really grateful for them. Last week, Andrew did an incredible job bringing the word. You can, yeah, this is cool. This is a good way to start. We just get applause for things. And uh, he earned some brownie points by showing a picture of his family. So I figured... I'd do the same. I'd show a picture of my family. So here's a picture of my family. Um, you know, a lot of people say the kids look like me, but I think they look like the mom, you know. Uh... No, you may, may have noticed this out in the lobby. This is our uh, It's a Wonderful Life uh, poster. And there have been people that have told me, like, that image is burned into their psyche and that I owe them for some reason. I don't know why I owe them. But here's the original movie poster. To be honest, you know, it's a little subtle. It's a little subtle, the shifts between, you can see them side by side. To be honest, the movie is very subtle. The style of movie that we're used to these days is, is very different than the, the pace and the style. The, it, it takes your attention to watch it. It's become one of my favorite movies. I don't know if it's your favorite movie. Lots of people told me it's their favorite Christmas movie. Caitlin, who is singing up here, it's her favorite movie of all time. And it's just a fantastic movie, but it requires attention to get to the depth of what it explores, to get to the depth of the characters and, and what's going on. They're actually acting. They're not just talking the whole time. You actually have to watch their facial expressions and their process. Now, warning, this is about It's a Wonderful Life, and if you haven't seen it, this will contain some spoilers, okay, you know? Now, the movie did come out in 1946, so... Uh, I'm sorry. I don't know if I should apologize for that. It's been on every Christmas for the last 60 years. So, you know, and like Andrew said last week, he said that the movie he did, Home Alone, he was, is older than him. Um, this is true for me with this movie, um, which probably doesn't hurt you in your being as much as when Andrew said that. Um, but this is a fantastic movie, and it's all about this guy named George Bailey, played by the, the incredible Jimmy Stewart. There he is, George Bailey. You just pause right there. And George Bailey is the type of guy who always tries to do the right thing. He always tries to sacrifice and think of others. He puts aside his dreams of being rich. You know, every time he comes into the store, he says, I wish I had a million dollars. Hot dog, you know, that whole thing. He puts aside his, his dreams of doing big things and traveling the world for the sake of others. He chooses the humble and less glamorous road time and time again for the sake of other people. But George is in trouble. In fact, the movie opens 
with the whole town praying for George Bailey, praying to God, God, protect him. God, help him. I think he's in trouble. George Bailey's big problem is he's lost sight of why someone does the right thing. And because he's lost sight of the why, why, why would we keep sacrificing? Why would we keep displaying humility? Every sacrifice brings a feeling of imprisonment. Every time it costs him his dreams, the world feels a little bit smaller. He's, he's, he's stuck. He's stuck in a job he doesn't want, stuck in a, in a, in a town he's always wanted to leave. It cost him. In fact, I'm going to show you a clip in just a second here, and I'll set it, up for, set it up for you. This clip here, Frank Capra, who directed it, he tries to sum up the character of George Bailey in, in, in one take, and you'll see it. He, he walks from the train, which represents everything to him that he's ever desired, leaving, going, and traveling, and doing big things, making lots of money, everything he's always said, the, the best sounds in the world are whistle, train whistles and, and anchors being pulled up. And he has to turn his back because he knows he's got to sacrifice again. You know, he's been holding down the fort. He, he gave up his, his college and his traveling so his brother could go and so that he could help manage the family business. And you see in this one take, I want you to notice just his expression as he realizes because of his brother's news, he's got to sacrifice again. And then he fakes a smile. Here, check this out. Uh, there are plenty of jobs around somebody likes to travel. Look at this here. Venezuela oil fields. Wanted man with construction experience. There's always Here's hopes the and dreams of different jobs right he could here. have. Wanted man with engineering experience. There she blows. You know what the three most exciting sounds in the world are? Uh-huh. Breakfast is served, lunch is served, no, dinner. No, 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 no. Anchor chains, plane motors, and train whistles. Peanut. There's the professor now. Old Professor well, Phi Bailey. George Geographic Explorer All Bailey. What, no husky Bailey, dogs, no sleds. Uncle no. Billy, I haven't changed a bit. Nobody ever changes oh, here, oh, you know oh, that. I'm glad to see you. <laughs> Say, where's Mother? She's home cooking the fatted calf. Come on, let's go. Oh, wait, 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 wait a minute. George, Uncle Billy. I want you to meet Ruth. Hello. Oh, Ruth Dakin. Ruth Dakin Bailey, if you don't mind. I want you to notice the transition well, on his face. I had a surprise. Here she is. Meet the wife. what this means for him. Uh, what do you know? Huh. Wife. <laughs> right. How do you do? Congratulations. What am I doing? Congratulations. Oh, goodness, Harry, you <laughs> said you should do the right thing. Why don't you tell me? Why don't He's calculating how to cost him. What's a pretty girl like you doing marrying this two-headed brother of mine? Well, I'll tell you, it's purely mercenary. My father offered him a job. Oh, we got you and the job. Well, Harry's cup running over. Uh, George, about that job. Bruce spoke out of turn. I never said I'd take it. You've been holding the bag here for four years, and... Well, I won't let you down, George. I would like to... Well, wait, wait a minute. I forgot the bags. I'll be right back. As he turns his back on the train, processes what it's going to cost him again. And he's frustrated, he's got resentment, and then he fakes a smile and chooses to go on and to sacrifice again. George, 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 that's all Harry ever talks about. Ruth, that's... What about this job? Oh, well, my father owns a glass factory in Buffalo. He wants to get Harry started in the research business. See, every, every time he gives up his needs for the needs of someone else, it costs him. In fact, we go through George's whole life, and we see every sacrifice brings a feeling of imprisonment and almost punishment and pain. 
When he's a kid, he, he jumps into the freezing water to save his brother. And because of it, it costs him his hearing in one of his ears, which later on plays a, plays a factor into him not being able to go and fight in the war, which he wants to do. When he's working as a kid with the pharmacist, he, he notices the pharmacist accidentally puts poison because he's depressed because his son has died from the Spanish flu. And he, he puts the wrong thing in the capsule and George, as a boy, speaks up. And he doesn't, he doesn't uh, take the medicine because he knows he made a mistake. And in his humility, he doesn't want to embarrass him. He doesn't want to confront him. He doesn't want to tell anybody. And he gets beaten by the pharmacist for it. Over and over again, we see this pattern. He, he's, he's graduated and he's getting ready to go to, go to college and this, go to Europe. And his father dies, so he takes over the job that he never wanted in order to save people's homes. And it costs him the dreams of going to college and, and traveling. Later on, there's a bank run. And, and everybody's worried about their money and they need to pull it out. They, the banks won't open and they don't have enough money to eat. And here it is. It's George's happiest day. He's married the love of his life. There's a whole romance side to the story. That's pretty incredible. And they're about to go on their honeymoon. They got $2,000, which in their day is the equivalent of like $27,000 in our day. That's a pretty good honeymoon prize, right, to go out. And because of this bank run, they go in there and people need money to eat and to pay their bills and to pay for medicine. And so they, it cost him his honeymoon and his money. Later on, Mr. Potter, who's the villain in the movie and is known as one of the, the most evil villains in all of movie history. I mean, he is pure evil. He's like, the, he's this guy who just totally wants to take over everything and charge people, just total selfishness and, and greed. And so in order to get George Bailey out of the way so that he can just own the town, he offers him a job and he says, why don't you think about yourself for once? He never seen somebody so afraid of success. And he offers him a job, and he says, how much money do you make? And George says, he makes $45 a week, which is around uh, $800 uh, a week today, which would be an annual salary before taxes, like $40,000 a year, pretty, pretty average job. And he offers him a job that would make around what we would call like $350,000 a year. But George knows that he can't take that, even though he wants to. It would, it would allow him to, to buy nice things for his wife and to, to live life a little easier and to do the things, travel and see the world, and yet he, it costs him again. It's because he's lost sight of the why. Each sacrifice feels like an imprisonment, the world getting smaller. And because he's lost sight of the why somebody does the right thing, why somebody sacrifices, every act of humility brings resentment and bitterness, and we see this in his character as it unfolds. See, life isn't what George Bailey thought it would be. He wanted to see the world, to do big things, to make a million dollars. He wanted to shake the dust of this old town off of him. He wanted to lasso the moon and give it to his wife. And yet that's not how it played out. There, everything's broken, beat up, and withering in his life. And each thing feels like an indictment on him and what he doesn't have because of the choices that he's made to sacrifice. His house is in shambles. Every time he, he runs up the stairs, 
Nathaniel comes off the banister in his hand and he just wants to throw it down because it reminds him of the house that they live in and that he's not able to provide the way that he wants to provide. They have this old beat-up car where the door is stuck because of the time where he kicked it shut because he was frustrated as he compared his life to his friend Sam's who got to do whatever he wanted and yet he's stuck here. His daughter's sick because they don't have the best clothes and their house is cold. And symbolically, even the flower that she won that she holds so precious is, is wilting. So George grabs it, and as part of his character, as always, he, he peels the dead petals off and tries to hide them in his pocket without her seeing and says, look, it's just fine. And everything feels like a reminder that, that life is not the way George Bailey thought it would be. And here on Christmas Eve, George's uncle supposed to make a deposit to the bank of $8,000, and he lost it. And $8,000, you might go, oh, that's not too bad. For them, that's like $100,000, $100,000 deposit. Where are you going to find that if you lose it? Because of his uncle's mistake, somebody's going to go to jail, and George knows it's always me, always making the sacrifice. Taking responsibility for his uncle's mistake will cause him to go to jail, his business to close in scandal, and many people's homes to be lost. The piles of things that don't seem to work become too much for George Bailey, and the weight of it all gets to him, and he goes full-on mad dad syndrome. Full-on mad dad syndrome. He explodes on his kid's teacher, somehow trying to blame the teacher for why the kid's sick brings her to tears over the phone. His kids are asking for stuff, and he says, what, what do you want? What are you saying excuse me for? He says, I got burped, you know? I don't know if you've ever experienced the mad dad syndrome or the mad parent syndrome. I've experienced it both as a, as a perpetrator and a recipient. I remember as a kid seeing your parent freak out, and you have no context for the weight that they carry or, or the things that they have, and you just feel scared and you feel sad for them, and you don't know what to do. I've been here now, now approaching 35 and having two kids and a, and a wife of my own. I, I get it. The weight of all these things, the weight of, of life. And it's really easy to, to, to just react. And George turns and he sees the look on their faces and he sees the tears and he sees the fear and the sadness that he's caused, and he resents himself for doing it. So he runs through the door desperate, and at the end of his rope, he makes a desperate prayer. Oh, I need divine intervention. You see just tears coming out of his face as he sits there at the bar quietly praying to himself, to God. He needs saving, but it doesn't come right away. He then gets drunk and punched in the face and he wrecks his car and he's lost sight of why anyone would ever do the right thing ever. Like it just brings pain in his mind. So he ends up on top of a bridge with the life insurance policy in his coat pocket and his lip bleeding, contemplating, ending it all and wishing that he had never been born. George Bailey needs some encouragement. He's in trouble and he needs a reason so if you have your Bibles, we're going we're gonna to look at a passage that gives those two things. Uh, turn to Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 11.
Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. It's towards the back of your Bibles. And the book of Philippians is known as a prison epistle, which just is a fancy way of saying it's a letter written from prison. Paul's in prison writing to the church in Philippi, thus the name Philippians, and he's writing to encourage them. In fact, the overwhelming word that's used on and on throughout the book is joy. He's writing to encourage them because things are about to get really tough. He's in prison and he's going, well, it's probably coming your way. There's going to be persecution, there's going to be prison and probably, possibly death. And so here in Philippians, he's writing about the encouragement and purpose in life. So chapter 2, verses 1 through 11 says this, So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, if there's any of those things, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you not look only to his own interests, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name above every other name, so that in the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in, in heaven and on earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Let's break that down and look at it a little closer. Verses 1 and 2, it basically says this. If you've experienced the gospel at all, do this. Be unified. Notice the if any statements. He, he rattles off one, two, three, four, four of them. Paul spells out the motivation for seeking unity in the church. See, Paul, Paul really wants this church, think, tr troubles coming its way, be unified. He's in four clauses that begin with the word if. One theologian said this, the word if here points to realities and certainties. The if in this passage points to realities and certainties, not possibilities or probabilities. Did you catch that? The ifs in this passage, they're guaranteed. They're not probabilities, they're certainties. You could swap out the if with as surely as you've experienced this. In these four clauses, Paul is reminding believers of four certainties that they can be sure are true. These confident indicatives of the reality are the basis for his urgent command to be unified as a church. Here's what he says, so if there is any encouragement in Christ. Have you ever experienced that? Have you ever, any encouragement because of the gospel, because of what Christ has done? Notice how we start with Jesus. Jesus is always the first cause and the source it says, if you've had any comfort from love, this is the experience of love in community that gives comfort, especially in times of suffering. If you've ever experienced that because of the gospel, you ever experienced the kind of love that, that Jesus talks about when he's telling his disciples and his kind of last little cues and on, on things right before he's, he's going to be arrested, he says, this is my new commandment to you that you 
love one another. And then he goes on to say, they will know you are my disciples by your love. Same concept right here in this passage. If you had any comfort from that type of love, any participation or fellowship or partnership with the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, this, this, these words denote the display of concern over another's misfortune. Have you ever had anybody pray over you? They say, I see you from afar and I've just been praying and I've been concerned about you and I want to see what I can do for you. He said, if you've experienced, basically, if you've, you've experienced the gospel, if you believe the gospel, the story of Jesus, and you've experienced the grace and the goodness of God's people, if that's you, he says, complete my joy. How do we do that? By being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Be unified in mind, be unified in love and action, be unified in full accord. This, in some of your translations, they might even say soul or spirit. It's this kind of like soul brothers and soul sisters, this oneness. Paul says, make my heart dance by being unified. Verses three and four really say humility and sacrifice, considering others is how you can be unified. That mindset is how you do it. Paul lists two negative attitudes to eliminate and one positive attitude to cultivate. Look for it. He he lists two negative attitudes to eliminate and one positive attitude to cultivate for believers to be of one mind. He says this, do nothing out of selfish ambition. That seems pretty like like nothing. Do nothing out of selfish ambition is the first attitude you have to eliminate. Selfish ambition is this looking out for number one because you have to win. It's this, this like vying for position. If, if for us life is a competition whose prizes we must win, we will always think of others as enemies or at least as opponents who must be pushed out of the way in order for us to get what we want. And it will always cause disunity. Selfish ambition always causes disunity. There cannot be community where there is selfish ambition. The other attitude he says to eliminate is, or conceit. Some of your Bibles may say vain conceit. It could really best be understood as this idea of empty glory. Empty glory, it's, it's the pursuing the things that look really shiny, but they don't give life. The things that sparkle, but they don't have anything of a deeper quality. The things that are hollow and quick to fade, not eternal. Much like the things that Mr. Potter offers George Bailey. Now, for the attitude you should cultivate, he says this, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. This idea of counting others doesn't mean they actually are. I mean, God values you and them, but the way we look, we count them as more significant. Let each of you not look only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Let each of you not look only to his own interests. You're going to do that. We know you're, you're good at that, but also to the interests of others. And then he moves on to verses 5 through 8 where Paul says this, considering others is what Jesus did all the way from Christmas to Easter. He says, have this mind among yourselves. This is the mindset that we're supposed to have, the mindset of looking to others first. He says, which is yours in Christ Jesus. I love that. If you're a believer, you got this. It's like in your back pocket. Just access it. This type of mindset. 
If you're a believer, it's yours because of Jesus. Jesus who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality of God a thing to be grasped. Same, same thing. He's, he's equal with God, but he didn't count it that way. Just like you aren't to count yourselves equal with others, you see them as more significant. But he emptied himself, and here's the Christmas story, by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. There's Good Friday and Easter. And he moves to therefore, and he shows us that purpose is wrapped up in worship for Jesus, and purpose is wrapped up in worship for us, because he's our example and our source. It says, therefore, notice therefore, because of Christ's sacrifice and his humility, because of him looking to the interests of others, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name above every other name. We just sang about that. We just sang about that name. What a beautiful and wonderful name it is. Last week, Andrew pointed to the Christmas story in the book of Matthew, where it says, you shall call him Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. And then it points to an Old Testament reference that says he's Emmanuel. So he's Emmanuel and Jesus. Jesus is the Greek form of the name Yeshua, the Hebrew name Yeshua. The Yah meaning Yahweh and the Shua meaning saves. His name literally means God saves. And this is an important fact that we'll be coming back to over and over And God is the one who saves people. And Paul goes on, he says, so that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father, to the glory of God the Father. Jesus is our example and our purpose and he's wrapped up in glorifying God. And so Paul's saying, just like Jesus was, so should you be. Not that you can save people, that's the work Jesus did. We do it in response to what he's already done. We are working to this end that every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. William Barclay said this about the passage. He said, but the aim of Christians ought to be not self-display, but self-obliteration. We should do good deeds, not in order that others may glorify us, but that they may glorify our Father in heaven. Christians should desire to focus people's eyes, not on themselves, but on God. Here's what Paul's saying in this passage. Paul's encouraging the Philippian church to be unified. And how they do that is by thinking of others first. You want a unified church? Stop thinking about yourself. Think about others first. That's the mindset that Jesus had. It's the mindset that we put on. Sacrifice and humility. Just like Jesus did to the glory of God. Because Jesus did it, we should do it. Not to earn God's favor but in response to the favor he's already given. Because Jesus is generous, we ought to be generous. Because Jesus humbled himself, we should humble ourselves. Because Jesus sacrificed, we should sacrifice. Jesus is the why and the source. Christmas is the story of Jesus humbling himself and becoming a man. And it's the ultimate display of God's generosity, his sacrifice, and his humility. It's an incredible story, the Christmas story, but don't kid yourself. It's not as like glamorous as it may appear. It's so steeped in humility. 
the God of the universe incarnate in a little baby. Insane. So who are we to think we, we deserve more? This is the example we have. As cliche as it may sound, Jesus is the reason for the season. That's why the Christmas spirit is all summed up in generosity and thinking of others. That's why we love Christmas spirit. I remember I had this, this atheist friend who just loved Christmas. He loved giving gifts. He loved the spirit of generosity. I said, where in some sort of survival of fittest system does that come from? Looking out for others. I said, I think you like it because you were made in the image of a generous God. And every time you act generously, you're in tune with your creator and your design. And that's what we were made for, to be generous in order to reflect God's goodness and his character. It's worship, worship through caring for others. We were made in his likeness, and we end up being in tune with our design when we think of others first. Now we come back to George Bailey, and he was in trouble. People were praying desperately for him, and he needed a savior. He had lost sight of the why you think of others first. You see, sacrifice and humility apart from God will always eventually lead to leaving you feeling trapped and resentful. Nobody ever thinks about me. I just give, and I give, and I give. But humility and sacrifice in response to the unlimited eternal humility and sacrifice of God and what he's already done will make you joyful. The movie very intentionally has two songs throughout the second half of its duration. His little daughter's practicing the song on the piano, Hark the Herald Angel Sing. It's kind of hidden behind the song, and at the end they all sing it. Spoiler alert, the redemption for George and the, the answer to his financial problem doesn't come from money just appearing out of nowhere, but God working through people, thinking about him first instead of themselves, and displaying the very generous, generosity, sacrifice, and humility that he needed to see, and it leaves him dumbfounded. And then they all sing, Hark the Herald Angels Sing, the song that we sang this morning, a song steeped in taking the Old Testament prophecy and the arrival of Jesus and the future promises of everything being restored and lumping them together and pointing towards the incarnate God points to things like, like God and sinners reconcile, peace on earth and goodwill towards men, light and life for us. More that men no more may die. And it's very intentional. Born to give us second birth and new life. They move from the song, Hark the Herald Angels Sing, to the song, Old Lang Syne. At the end of the movie, they all sing this song, which is a song all about people living community together. There's this line in the song, we'll drink the, cu the cup of kindness yet. But here's the interesting thing about the movie. It's steep, you, like you feel good and it's very nostalgic. But at this point, and, and more importantly, at the point where George decides that his life is wonderful and worth living, the important question to ask is what's changed in his life? What's changed in George's life that has made him decide that it's actually a wonderful life? 
nothing. And yet, everything. You see, nothing has changed in his life when he decides that his life is wonderful and worth living. He's still in the same career he, that he never wanted to be in. He's still in this struggling business. He still barely makes enough to make ends meet. He still has the same busted house and even more busted car now that he wrecked it. He still doesn't know where the $8,000 went. He still is potentially going to jail, and the police are looking for him. The interesting thing about movies from this era is there was a written rule that the bad guys can never win. Very interesting. Bad guys can never win, evil cannot prevail, and doing, doing awful things can't be glorified. Far cry from where we're at today where we don't even just make anti-hero movies, we make straight-up root-for-the-villain movies. And so they, they kind of, in the subtext, break that rule because Mr. Potter gets the $8,000. He's up, eight grand. Nobody ever finds out, at least we don't find out about it. He's still probably gonna do just fine financially, and George Bailey's still gonna struggle so they break the rule, or maybe, maybe the point is that the rule isn't broken because what happens is the value system is changed because that's what Jesus does. He changes what winning and losing looks like. Mr. Potter may get the money, but he definitely isn't seen as the winner at the end. What's changed in George Bailey's life to make it wonderful? Everything has changed in his life. Everything that was a reminder of how his life was not what he planned it to be is now a reminder of how wonderful his life actually is and how every sacrifice and act of humility was good and every mistake and every brokenness is a grace that was used to bring him where he now is. And he is grateful and he is joyful. He can't even contain it. The moment he snaps out of it, he licks his lips and he goes, I'm I'm bleeding. And he's excited that he's, that he's bleeding. He finds the dead f- flower petals in his pockets and he, he shouts for joy. He, he finds the busted car and he gets ecstatic. He runs down the main strip of the town that he's always seen as a prison, smiling and shouting, Merry Christmas! Merry Christmas, Bedford Falls! To the job he felt trapped in, he runs by and he says, Merry Christmas, you wonderful old building and loan. He's so excited. He, he runs up even to Mr. Potter. Merry Christmas, Mr. Potter. And he bursts through the door of his home. He says, I'm going to jail. <laughs> so excited. And now when he runs up the stair and the finial comes off the banister, he, he kisses it and he puts it back. He embraces his kids and he showers them with affection. He embraces his wife and showers her with affection. Interesting side note of the movie, the opposite of Mr. Potter, the villain, is not George Bailey. It's his wife, Mary. George Bailey's the guy that's they're battling over. Do you look out for yourself or do you look out for others? It's like the, the angel and the demon sitting on his shoulders. And the movie ends with a toast to George Bailey. It says to George Bailey, the richest man in all of Bedford Falls. And what is it that makes him the richest man in Bedford Falls? It's sacrifice, humility, 
and purpose. You see, a life spent on others for God's glory is indeed a wonderful life. It makes you rich. It brings adventure to the domestic. It causes you to find joy in the broken and withering as they remind you of the life that you get when you give yours up. They move from the song, Hark the Herald Angel Sings, to Old Lang Syne at the end of the movie. They move from recognizing that a savior actually came to a song about being kind to one another in generosity. That sequence is important. They even focus on George Bailey and you hear Jimmy Stewart sing the words, we'll drink the cup of kindness yet. So here's the the application of, of all of this craziness. This Christmas season, Embrace the root of Christmas. Jesus is humbling himself and displaying uh, sacrifice. That he actually came. He's our example. And he lived this life and he died. He was obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And let that move you to a spirit of generosity and looking out for others first. And you do that for the glory of God. And it will bring you joy and purpose. So I, I'm going to invite the worship team up here, but I got three questions for you today. Maybe where you're sitting at, maybe this hits you. But first off, I want to ask you, do you know that God came to reconcile you to him? That he came to make peace between you and him, that you were enemies with God, and while you were enemies with God, Christ came and he died for you. Maybe you're sitting in here and you're like, I hate the Christmas season. It just reminds me of all the brokenness in my life, all the things that haven't gone right, all the things that, that are empty, the people that aren't there, the people that should be there, the people who I depended on that let me down. And you're like George Bailey, you're like, man, I just give and I give and I give and I'm just at the end of it all. I have news for you. That God loves you so much not devoid of your flaws. He sees you as who you are, completely riddled with brokenness and failure and fear, and he sent his son to earth to come and die for you and to make peace between you. The second question I have is this, is there any selfish ambition that you need to get rid of because it will cause disunity? Is there any, anything in you that's just vying for position? Oh, I wish I had this. I wish, I wish my life was this way. And it's causing you to look at people not as people to, to put their interests first, but as opponents and as enemies. I want to encourage you to do nothing out of selfish ambition. But in humility, can count others as more significant as yourself because this is what Jesus did. And finally, how can you aim your life at the glory of God? Because that's what Jesus was all caught up in. Glorifying the Father instead of glorifying yourself in empty, vain pursuits. The movie ends with the song Old Lang Syne, which is a a song about brotherhood. Today, I want to close with us all singing a song that's in the tune of Old Lang Syne. It's called All Glory Be to Christ. 
And it's about fixing your life and your heart on glorifying the Father because of what He's done. And there's only one word that's the same in both songs, and it says, we'll drink the cup of kindness yet. And the only way that makes sense is if we understand that God was the one who initiated the kindness, that he showed his favor on us, that he displayed his goodness and his grace. Before we had the, it says in Hebrews, before we had the words of God, he spoke through the prophets in many ways. But in these days, we have Jesus, who is the exact radiance and representation of God. God actually came. Because of that, we should be singing for joy and we should be proclaiming glory to God. Thanks for joining us today. Why not ask God to change your life so you can go and change your world for Him? To find out more about our church online, go to www.compasschurch.info and we'll see you next time.